0: Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez. The podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your
1: host. This is Henry Lopez. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. My special guest today is Travis Stefan. Travis, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, Travis is a true serial entrepreneur, as you will soon come to understand. And he's with me today to share highlights from his entrepreneurial journey his experiences and opinions in particular on the cannabis industry. It's a topic we have never addressed on this show, so it'll be interesting to get his insights. And then tips and insights in general on growing a business. He's got a lot of experience doing that. He's done that for all different size companies, but we're going to apply it to what we can learn from him about growing our small business. To receive more information about the Howa business, including the show notes page for this episode, and how you can continue supporting my show and receive exclusive content and discounts through a Patreon membership, just visit thehowofbusiness.com. I also encourage you to please subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss any new episodes. Let me tell you a little bit more about Travis. Travis Steffen is a serial entrepreneur with eight successful exits to date. He's an Inc. 500 CEO, a growth mentor in most of Silicon Valley's top accelerator programs a published author and a doctoral candidate in marketing with a specialization on AI or in AI, applying it to marketing, artificial intelligence. I'm going to get his thoughts on AI as well as it applies to small business. Travis Steffen was the CEO of Growflow, a B2B SaaS serving licensed cannabis businesses. Growflow is the market-leading seed to sale, so the whole life cycle platform in cannabis by nearly every metric and was the fastest growing retail POS product in the cannabis industry in 2020 and 2021. Now, he's moved on from that. He sold that. He's currently the CEO of Growth Team, and Growth Team provides top 1% education, resources, shortcuts, and hands-on help to double the growth rates for subscription-based businesses guaranteed. Travis lives in the Marina del Rey, California area. Once again, Travis, Stefan, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, what a great intro.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. There's a lot there to tell so much that you've accomplished and we're only going to be able to to, get to to grab some of the highlights, but thanks for taking the time to, to share with me. I want to start where I usually start with guests is that journey. If I got it right, you studied exercise science, so you were an athlete so when you were in university studying exercise science, what what were the plans?
0: My plan was to be in school so that I could play football. <laughs> uh, I, I grew up in a, a hyper-masculine culture, you know, middle of the Midwest in Iowa. Wonderful place to grow up. But when I was growing up, being smart was not necessarily socially rewarded. Interesting. It was um, being athletic, being strong, uh, those types of things. So that's who I... Wanted to become. Uh, I, I was attached to that social validation at that point in my life, and uh, because that did a lot of things that I actually didn't even enjoy. Like I didn't really enjoy actually competing in sports. I enjoyed training, mm. um, but after after I popped my Achilles tendon and I could no longer play football, I actually got into mixed martial arts, which again didn't enjoy competing. Loved training, loved learning, loved teaching others, um, but you know, in terms of actually competing, didn't enjoy it, was good at it, but didn't enjoy it at all. Uh, It was just the conditioning that, you know, I was subject to at that point in my life from that environment. Um, And it wasn't really until I met other entrepreneurs that looked like me that didn't seem unapproachable in any way uh, that I jumped into that sector. But, you know, that's fast forwarding a little bit. So, Mm -hmm. you know, for a little while there, yes, I was an exercise science student because that's what the other football players were. And I wanted to hang out with them. Um, and I didn't really show up to class all that often. Like, thankfully, my my folks gifted me with uh, my mom was a community college teacher. And uh-huh. my dad's one of the smartest humans I've ever met, despite not having any degrees whatsoever. Um, and because of that, I, I was at a really big advantage intellectually. And so I could show up, take the tests, never went to library or anything like that, and still did really, really well. Did The same thing with my first master's degree uh, in exercise physiology and biomechanics. Um, there was no plan to go be a professional strength coach for more than a couple of weeks until I learned that they didn't really make a whole heck of a lot of money based on the, the, uh, and I didn't, I, I loved training. I loved training others, but I didn't want to cap on my income potential. I wanted, I had a lot of really big plans. I wanted to take over the world.
1: So, yeah, I know. And just to clarify for those who are listening who might be in the strength uh, or in the fitness business, you you can make money but but you can't scale beyond what you're able to trade in the way of hours for dollars, right? And so that's that's, that's what yeah. you saw. Yeah.
0: At that point I I hadn't really been case model entrepreneurship at all. So yeah. in my head the job that you got, the W2 right. position that you got was your income potential and yeah. that's why I I kind of discounted it. Now I did and ine- inevitably start and sell to fitness businesses and then got non-competed for several years in that space. So yeah. like those were explorations into an uncapped income in that space, which absolutely can be done. I was just too green and too naive to recognize that at the time.
1: I just want to go quickly back to the point about competitiveness in the arena of sports. Why, why is it that you did not, enjoy, because you are a competitive person, I have to believe, but in that arena, what is it about that that did not appeal to you?
0: Yeah, honestly, it was, it was, like, for example, in, in football, it was um, the way or the speed at which the game was played at the Division one level in, in at uh, the University of Northern Iowa, where I played, um, or, and I, I shouldn't say that I played, I was on the team, but uh, <laughs> um, I did not actually get into any games by the time I popped my Achilles two years in. Uh, very difficult to break into a roster at that level. You have to sure. be incredibly gifted, but beyond that, you have to be able to think so quickly and at the next level, which was always in my, in my head as a kid, like that's what I wanted to do, right? Like if you get to that level, you can, you don't have time to think things are just innate. You, you see something and then your body just does something. There's no space to think or process information. It just happens, right? You react at that point. And I didn't have that um, at that level. And I didn't really recognize that I didn't have that. So there was something missing for me. And what happened in competition is I was often playing to not mess up or I was I playing see. to not lose. Uh, and so it was a very stressful environment. And I didn't have the knowledge or the the insight to peg exactly what the problem was. But I really enjoyed practicing. I really enjoyed training. I really enjoyed being with my teammates and learning things. But when it came to competition, the stakes were very high. And my brain was not, you know, it was just not a unique gift of mine to just like see something and instantly know my body is going there. Yeah. And there were people on the team that absolutely had that. And, you know, they went on to have long careers in the NFL.
1: Now, as it applies to business, though. Do you have that? I mean, you're a Mensa member, so you—that's got to tell me you think pretty quickly, as it applies now in your business experience. Do you still need time to process things like like I do, or are you able to think quickly? Is that is that now a skill that you have?
0: Great question. So I mean, like, and one other thing, by the way, on that prior topic, like when I got into MMA, the same thing was true. I just was I had a fear of losing in front of a crowd. I see. Right, Um, so that it wasn't getting punched in the face or anything like that. You do that every day, sure. Training, Um, but losing in front of the crowd was something that was really scary for me. Uh, So, like, on to your question. So, Mensa is kind of strange. First and foremost, one of the more—I hate to say it—I don't want to put them on blast. One of the more pointless organizations. (laughs) Like, they don't actually do much. Like, once you get into Mensa, yeah, they have like some weird meetups and they have like a little newsletter, but. Um, you kind of just have it just to have it. It's almost like a little feather in your cap. And it's oh, course, also not it's it's not an indicator of success or your ability to like know things. It's your build the ability for your brain to recognize patterns really quickly. And so if I gave you a logic puzzle and I said like these three things are in order, which of the next, which is the next thing that needs to be added, like that's what what IQ measures. So it's not math, it's not. You know, it's it's more just like pattern recognition and problem solving in that regard. And you don't need to have it within a millisecond like you do in sports. No, you don't. Right. You pattern recognition
1: is it. critical to entrepreneurs, isn't it?
0: 100%. It absolutely is. But you do get the, you, you have, have the some time of yeah. having some conversations, even if they're brief, in some cases where you get to talk through things and think about things from a few different angles. And that's a lot more like how, like where my innate gifts lie yeah say.
1: and let me jump to then because i think it relates to having partners or co-founders and i know you have some strong opinions on that like for me that's this point is one of the reasons i prefer working in partnership hmm. is because i i like that balance i like that challenge i i tend to overanalyze so usually my partners are more let's just go so how how do you how does this impact your thought on partnerships
0: I'm in favor of good partnerships, right? Like I've had a couple business partners in my career and it's only, it's only been a couple that I've really deemed to be like, I would do anything with this person because their work ethic, their curiosity, um, their ability to problem solve matches my own. So I know that I can let them go do their thing and I can relax and focus on something else knowing that it's gonna get done. For example, the last company that you had talked about at the top of, of this episode was Growflow. And that was my eighth exit. So i had had a lot of experience with working with really high level people that I wanted to build something with. And when I had the opportunity to take over Growflow, which I was not the original founder of, I came in and you know took over the company as CEO and you know, brought it from relative obscurity to market leadership in, in a couple of years. But it was because of the fact that I could tap a couple of the really, really brilliant leaders that I had worked with in prior companies, you know, some of them I had a couple of exits with, um things like that. I knew that they were they were just as capable of stepping into a role like that and being a CEO and doing a great job. Uh, but they had unique gifts in other lanes. So like there was um, a friend of mine who, I was able to recruit as CTO of the company. And he was just a really, really brilliant dude, but also a great leader. Mm -hmm. Same thing for the guy that, um, you know, I had come in and be the chief revenue officer and chief experience officer and chief financial officer and so on and so forth. All of those people I've had prior experience with, and I knew through experience, this is going to be a great marriage. You know, we can treat each other as peers. There's no hierarchical structure at this level I just have different account like areas of accountability and I made sure that comp was the same and equity was the same. So it actually was a true partnership, even though the titles were different. You know, through that lens, I've had a lot of really bad business partnerships that didn't last, you know, more than a year. Like I've had a couple that have lasted a few months when we realized we just don't work in the same way. (laughs) Um, This isn't going to work out super well because the kinds of things that you really want to do either... Are not a direct complement to the kinds of things that I'm great at, or your working style would facilitate a culture that I don't believe in, for example, yeah. and and yeah. I don't want to build. Um, those people are oftentimes very successful, but they need to have different partners.
1: Correct. Yeah. No. It, this all rings very makes a lot of sense to me, uh, Travis. I I have always boiled it down to it requires a good partnership requires trust, respect alignment, which is partly what you were just speaking to there. And and related to that is communication, right? And that sounds like what you're talking about with these other individuals where you have partnered successfully. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. All right. So obviously, as we've touched on, you've been a part of several now successful businesses, startups and companies that you've taken over. Has there been a common theme amongst these businesses? How how do you determine what you're going to do next?
0: Great question. So early on, no, there was not a common theme. It was, I was still stuck in the, here's an idea that I have. I think it's a great idea. So I'm going to do it. And I just have a massive bias to action. And I think that that's actually why most entrepreneurs fail to be completely frank is like they act on their own idea more often than not, they get really obsessed with an idea and they go build it only to find that their opinion is an outlier opinion. They're a sample size of one. Maybe they're not a perfect match for their market. Maybe they haven't done enough research and they're just really, really married to this specific vision because as young entrepreneurs, we're often taught who are the the gods of this this profession. It's like Steve Jobs, ultimate visionary, right? That like we wanna birth this person's vision into reality. I don't think that that should be a, a person to aspire to be as the normal run of the mill founder. It's very, very rare, if not, like almost probably hasn't even happened since him, like maybe with Elon, but it's it's very rare that you can get to that point with just your ideas. It's like, that should just be like an outlier case. Where most people should focus is, what is a sector that's growing? What's an avatar within that sector with spending power, readily available contact information, and excruciating problems. And then through a series of interviews, like structured interviews that do not lead the witness in any way, doing as many deep explorations into that person's life and their psyche as possible, then going back 20, 30 interviews in and finding patterns, trying to figure out what is the commonality between all these people, uh, what's the problem, that's patternistic here. How are they describing it? Where are they looking for solutions? How much value would this solution create for them? And once you've had those analyses of those, those interviews where you did not lead the witness, you didn't come in and try to steer them in the direction of an idea you already have, thereby kind of corrupting your data to begin with and wasting your time if you just know that you're going to do this thing anyway, like who are you gathering this data for? Um, so if you let the data speak to you and you see those patterns, the customer has now given you your marketing copy when they were describing the problem. They've given you where you're gonna actually market the product, where they're looking for solutions. They've given you the exact problem you're solving, which is exactly what the product should be. Like they will lay the yellow brick road for you, and all you have to do is walk the path and interact with them as much as possible. So, like in terms of where I've been later in my career. Has been squarely there, and that's been the pattern. Earlier, it was me learning a lot of lessons about how businesses are run.
1: Yeah, no, it sounds like like a lot of what I've always been doing, which is opportunistic, you know, the shiny object. But this, what you just shared, I think, Travis is a master class in a few minutes on how to look at this. In my opinion, and I love that you mentioned specifically Jobs and and Musk. They are unicorns, and if we aspire to become unicorns. It's usually for the majority of us going to be a futile attempt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so brilliantly, I, I think uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more on my experience. And thanks for sharing it that way. That brings me to this follow up question. Then, is it about the idea, or is it the execution, or is it both?
0: I I believe that it's both. But like, if if it's the idea, the execution to mine for gold for that idea. In my opinion, it's part of execution. So probably skew more towards execution because the idea extraction should be part of the execution process uh, just through the lens of exactly what we just talked about. So like through that lens, it is execution almost entirely. Ideas I think are, are worth chasing. They're worth experimenting around. They're, you know, they are great assets to have. Um, but at the end of the day, even an idea, if you bring it through the execution process of a sound experimentation cadence, if you have good growth ops, you'll actually be able to, through execution, derive the value from that idea from something that's not in your head. It's yeah. with actual data, it's with actual interaction with customers, it's with actual you know results to analyze and discuss with a team of really smart people who think differently than you do.
1: Well said. Thank you for that. When you find yourself at the helm of a successful business that you've built, you've put in three, four or five years, how do you decide if it's time to exit?
0: The answer I would have given earlier in my career when I was just exclusively bootstrapping is it would be when I would get bored. When I was no longer thinking about the business organically, it was never getting me out of bed in the morning and it was you know, something that actually wanted to keep me in bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what early on drove me to exit in hindsight. Those were not the correct reasons. It just should have been a signal that something is wrong within the business. And we need to adjust some things uh, that could be we're we're kind of treading water because we don't have one of the five bi-directional fits market model, channel product, and message. So we're scratching and clawing for every single dollar. Mm-hmm. And through that same lens, Um, you know, what I would also say is, you know, I also would, would exit because I would get obsessed with a new idea and I didn't have the discipline to actually like stick to it. Like for example, Jeff Bezos is not in that visionary camp with Steve jobs or Elon Musk, for example, he's, he's disciplined and he mines for data. Like one of their core values at Amazon is customer obsession. And this is what gives them the signals that they need to actually act. And his stick-to-itiveness in as much as like he's been building this business for thirty plus years, yeah, yeah. right. I mean, that, if he didn't
1: have that, he would have quit long ago, yeah. right? Oh yeah, <laughs>
0: I mean, he he like that sort of discipline to stick with one thing. And I believe it was Stephen Covey that said uh, the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. Mm-hmm. So few people, including myself, are largely unable to do that for a long period, a prolonged period of time. And the people who can, who are oftentimes less intelligent from an IQ perspective, going to back to Mensa, um, then the people who maybe are really, really brilliant, and they'll see all sorts of opportunities in life that are compelling in the world around them, and they'll feel compelled through a lack of discipline to solve them. Yeah. Um, so like in my the latter part of my career, I exit because it's the right time to exit from a market perspective you know, when we take a look and see, okay, were our understandings about our TAM or our SAM or our SOM wrong, right? And if if those any of those are true, we're not in a growing market or if there are some sort of market forces that are at play that will force us to rebuild our growth model or something along those lines, then I'll look to, you know, start to explore opportunities with potential strategic buyers. Um, it's only when there's kind of like know, either a catastrophic moment or the threat of of one that will actually go run a process with an investment bank.
1: I see. I see. Okay. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. All right. I got to tap your knowledge of the cannabis industry because again, we haven't had that conversation on this show ever. So you were in it uh, just at a high level, kind of uh, for somebody like myself who has, my experience is I'm invested in one fund, a real estate fund, and that fund, it's a weird thing. It lends money to landlords who are doing expansions to accommodate growers, mm-hmm. because it's hard money to get, right? Because mm-hmm. of this business and it's tricky. So they do. It's not quite hard money lending, but they provide for that funding to those landlords who are providing, and then in turn, growing facilities. So that's that's kind of my my extent of it. Um, but to tell us at a high level, what do what, what you what are your opinions about this industry?
0: Well, so. Every time I'll sell a company, I'll get non-competed on that sector for at least three years. Uh-huh. I had never had experience in the cannabis industry prior to taking over GrowFlow, right? And what I found, and I had, I had had experience in other highly regulated sectors before, finance, gambling, et cetera. Uh, and what I found is there is no more tightly regulated sector that I've been exposed to than cannabis. And it's not close, right? The, the, seeing how highly regulated industries are treated by and large, especially cannabis is it basically just woke me up to just how flawed our current political system is in a lot of different ways. Like for example, cannabis still to this day is federally illegal, right? Which then prohibits cross border national banks or lenders or any financial institutions or insurance companies or payroll providers from transacting business with, legitimate licensed cannabis businesses that are following state laws. Mm -hmm. You can, at the state level, apply for a cannabis license. Now, in some states, like every single state is so dramatically different in how they treat these companies that it becomes very expensive and tricky to run a larger company outside of a single state. So for example, buying a licensed transact business as a cannabis company in Oklahoma might cost you a couple thousand dollars a year if you were to go try to procure the same exact license in Florida, it would cost you at least $25 million to do (laughs) in both of those cases, what you can do and what you can't do with those licenses are completely different in some States like Arizona, for example, it's illegal to not own the entire value chain of that cannabis business. So the full life cycle of the plant from the planting of the seed to inevitably selling it to the customer. Like there are various different businesses involved in the life cycle of the plant from cultivation, harvest, processing, manufacturing, uh, selling to the end user, distributing, all those different things are different license requirements. In a state like Washington, it's illegal for the inverse to be true where you, you cannot own any businesses within the value chain, except for one type. So you better pick your spot, I see. right? There are some States where there are uncapped licenses. So you can just go apply and get one. If you pay, there are some States where those go up to like a bidding process. There are only a fixed number of licenses available period. All of these decisions are completely arbitrary by people who have absolutely no experience in the space whatsoever and just took a job with the government. Right. right. So all of these things have set the stage for how we're taking a business that was previously a black market, illegal business into legality. So we're forcing a lot of people who either had substantial experience as criminal operators or people who are involved with like finance, private equity, like things like mm-hmm. that, that wanted to enter the space for the green rush, quote unquote, right. Right. and I have absolutely no experience in that. Type of business. Both of those types of of business owners in the space are approaching it from completely different lenses and also experience completely different problems. So, if you're going to enter the space, expect a high amount of complexity, very little communication, tons of confusion, a tremendous amount of murkiness. But you have a passionate customer base who's hungry for product innovations and things that you actually need, right? So, For Growflow, our job effectively, like we were a compliance platform. We did inventory management, compliance, point of sale, analytics, sales tools for businesses up and down that supply chain. And our job was to keep people from breaking the law inadvertently. So that was the compliance platform. We had to direct them to exactly what to do. And by the way, the states themselves have these platforms and it's required by law for the operators to use those state platforms. The nice part about it is you can use those platforms without ever touching them. If a platform like Growflow, for example, plugged into them. The reason why that's important is you can do a whole bunch of illegal things within that government software. And the government is gonna enforce the law even within the confines of that platform. So if you can take an action within that government compliance platform, you will have no idea that that action that that platform allows you to take is illegal. And <laughs> it's good, almost set up as a trap. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. So it is a fascinating space. It is. And it can also be, you know, very, very strange. Like raising capital in that space is difficult. Um, banking, paying employees, like all of those core things that most businesses take for granted. Marketing, you can't market on any of the major platforms or anything like that. All of those things, you have to get incredibly creative. Uh, so it's a really big test for a founder to go into a space like that and actually have success. Yeah. Um, so I would just say if anyone just wants to get into a business to make money, that is not the sector to do it in because you're going to be signing up for a tremendous amount of complexity. There's a lot of easier ways to make money. But if you're able to actually stomach the complexity, it's a pretty substantial moat.
1: I see, and how how do you say why do you say that? Why do you think there's a moat there? Because because one of the things that I've heard is that boy, once uh, if the country does change as far as regulations, the big players will come in and squash me. Is that not true? Uh,
0: it's definitely true. Yeah, I mean, any any people who are very well funded can do that in almost any sector, right? So, yeah, um, there are going to be exceptions to the rule where you have built like a really stellar product that that is really really difficult to develop. Okay, uh, but these days that's becoming easier and easier to do. It's becoming cheaper, faster. Um, so it it is it stands to reason that if you have a war chest of capital, you can hire really smart people to go solve a similar problem and give yourself a fairly reasonable duration of time to do that you can absolutely build market share like capital is fuel right now you can also take a scrappy approach and you know recognize a gap in the market and and go go serve the market who a segment of the market that's being alienated but the second you become very successful you're going to start to get copycats So all those things, you better stay on your toes in a sector like that without a question.
1: It seems to me, it strikes me like from a pure business perspective that this is, as we've seen other times happen, the pioneers in a new emerging sector often don't survive. They don't cross the chasm, right? And that's what I feel here to some extent.
0: Correct. And it's oftentimes because like first mover advantage, I think in most sectors is wildly inflated in terms of its value. I would rather be a second mover for, you know, for, for a space where, for example, let's say you need bills passed, like a prior company of mine, we had 40 lobbyists on staff at its height. We got five bills passed. Right. And that process is excruciatingly difficult. It's time consuming, it's expensive, but after it happens, bunch of competitors can absolutely walk the path that you just laid for them and they're not exhausted, right? They're, so they're all of those things are true. Now there are some companies that are just enduring great companies that can be first movers and everyone thinks that they're stupid. And by the time they don't, they've already built a lead that is makes them impossible to to catch. Airbnb is an example. Yeah, Yeah.
1: that that, that makes sense. (music) This is Henry Lopez with a brief break from this episode to share a special offer from our new show sponsor Zinch. Zinch has been providing fast and convenient financing solutions for small business owners since 2004. Unexpected expenses can pop up anytime in a small business equipment breakdowns, license and permit fees, customer payment delays, and many other unexpected expenses for which you may not have the cash on hand to cover. And if you don't address this cash flow issue quickly, it could make or break your business. As I have shared many times on this podcast, running out of cash is one of the top reasons businesses can fail. If you require a loan to cover these unexpected expenses, the traditional loan process is too slow to be of any help. This is where Zinch comes in as the financing solution you need. Zinch is a direct lender that makes financing fast, simple, and built around your needs. If you're generating over 10,000 in monthly revenues and have been in business for over six months, Zinch can fund up to $250,000 in less than two days. The process is simple and quick. You answer some basic questions about your business and may receive a pre-qualified offer in less than five minutes without affecting your credit. Once approved, one of Zinch's loan advisors will review the lending options with you and help you choose the best one for your business. After signing your loan documents securely online, you'll receive funds in your bank account within 24 hours. I encourage you to see how much financing you can get with Zinch. And right now, Zinch is waiving the application fee for my listeners. That's a $250 value. So just visit financingthatworks.com. That's financingthatworks.com to learn more about Zinch. Loans are made or arranged pursuant to a California finance lender's law license. Okay. Are you currently, and you may not be able to say, but are you currently invested in any way in the cannabis industry?
0: Yeah. I mean, a substantial portion of our acquisition agreement for for GrowFlow was in stock, Um, And and that was, you know, very much by design. I'm a believer in the combined entity. Um, We got bought by Dama Financial, who is the global leader in uh, cannabis, fintech, banking, payments, etc. And, you know, I'm a believer that the two of those businesses combined create a really big differentiator versus any of the competition for either business. And because of that, you know, being able to share in the win that the the team is creating over there is really, really important. They're doing something that's really, um, really important for the industry. There were a lot of gray area operators that they competed with, and a lot of them one by one are either, either getting popped by the government or starting to recognize that the way that they've built their business is unsustainable. So uh, being able to share in that win that they create is... It was part of the upside.
1: Yeah, I love it. I love the type of business where, as I put it, you're not in the mining business, you're in the shovel business, right? So you're helping others that are the Mm -hmm. pioneers by providing them that essential service that they need to operate and be successful. Absolutely. All right, let's talk more about growth. That's what you're focused on now. Um, And we'll talk more about mygrowthteam.com. One of the things you talk about is now that I think relates back to what we started with, which is what you call performance psychology. But let me just ask you, what do you mean by performance psychology and that how does that help me grow my business?
0: One of the biggest precursors to a high growth company is having a leader that it, you know it can be a high growth leader, right? That's a critical piece of the puzzle. And one of the definitions of a high growth leader, in my opinion, is a strong ability and a strong commitment to managing your own psychology. This ride that we're on as entrepreneurs, even at the highest levels, is one of the swingiest, potentially most stressful journeys that you can elect to embark upon. And if you don't have you know, a strong emphasis in managing your own psychology and optimizing your own psychology it's going to be very difficult to not burn out after a couple of years. And if you've experienced burnout before, it's kind of like an open wound. And as you recover, yeah, you might get stitches on that wound, but when you jump back into the same environment later, it's going to open up a lot easier. Uh, so like, it is something that, you know, it's difficult to bounce back from. And then your threshold for, you know, not hitting it again is very low in comparison to where it, once was before you experienced that for the first time. So being able to invest in your own. So I think the last company that I was running, I had therapist, performance psychologist, an executive coach, a hypnotherapist, like all, I had a bunch of people working on me all the time. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because I was experiencing a problem. It was because I didn't want to experience a problem. I wanted to make sure that I could still perform for our, you know, hundred plus employees, for our hundred plus investors, for our, you know, customer base of several thousand uh, because all of their abilities to continue to do what they do every day were hinging on the decisions that I was making. And I wanted to make sure that I was respecting that. So being able to ensure that that's at the forefront of your list of priorities, it's not just spending more time working with your product team, or it's you know spending more time trying to solve for you know, something in your operating model or something like that. I would much rather kick either of those cans till tomorrow, than you know the the process of actually going through and using preventative medicine psychologically speaking,
1: so it's about the 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 fact that your mind, the health of your mind, your mindset, your health both physically and mentally, are what have to be in place for us to lead a company to exponential growth.
0: Yeah, when I say mindset, I'm not talking about like rah rah Gary V kind of stuff. There's a place for that, and I, I think he's a like a really smart guy. Um, but it's not just like just do it, work harder, like be stronger. It's it's absolutely not that. It is like definitely making sure that you're recognizing that you are in fact a human being. The stakes for you to continue to be a, a full like on point human being with a brain are far far higher than you know your average team member who just has a job. And they can shut off knowing that their fate is safe because of other people like you, right? That's a really heavy burden to potentially carry. And if you don't respect it, it would be like going and trying to climb Mount Everest without an oxygen tank, without, you know, a team of people who are watching the weather. It's like, oh, let's just go try to climb this, you know, by ourselves and figure it out, probably, right? Like that's why the mountain is littered with dead bodies. Right, literally.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, great, great, great insights. Thanks for sharing that. All right, I, I got to ask you about artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. and uh, we could talk about that for hours. But let me ask you this question: What, from a small business owner's perspective, what should I right now be learning about or beginning to apply in the way of AI in my small business?
0: For a small business, I would say that, you know, for example. Generative AI today and various forms of AI, like AI is not a new thing, by no, the way. Right. Most of us, if you're using products, if you're driving a relatively new vehicle, if, you're, if you have a smartphone, um, you've been using AI without realizing it for the better part of a decade and a half, maybe more. If you've gotten on Google in the last decade, you've been using AI. The difference of where we're at today versus where we used to be is computing power has gotten to the point where it's enabled commercial applications of it that are very, very obvious and a lot more general and and flexible than the ones that have been a lot more niche in the past. Like so, in the past, you might have had you know natural language processing or uh, machine learning or predictive analytics or you know various aspects like deep learning and so forth, right? And those are really, really useful. So if you categorize AI in three ways, you've got mechanical AI, which is actually executing tasks. You have thinking mm-hmm. AI, processing a lot of information and making decisions with a core set of constraints. And you have feeling AI, which is sentiment analysis and uh, making decisions as a result of the detection of emotion or the display of an emotion and so on and so forth. The blending of those three has created some really, really cool, noteworthy pieces of technology, like, you know, what OpenAI commercialized, like what Google did with Bard, like what a lot of the open source community is doing with a with a variety of different models right now. As a small business owner, what I would suggest is if you need a research assistant uh, for the gathering of data, if you need the ability to talk out decisions, if you need the ability to create assets, um, all small businesses need these things, right? If they want to market their product and they need to create a bunch of messages, if they want to be active on social media, if they want to um, ingest the data that they have for their company and make the proper predictions and decisions as a result, AI is at your fingertips and you can get an upgraded version of that with GPT 4 and open AI for $20 a month. Right and you can download an app on your phone and do it. If you're, you know, for example, wanting to dive into the psychology of how to inspire your prospective customers when they walk in your door, start to interact with AI and ask those types of questions. Drill in more deeply, ask it how it knows those things. Um, drill in even more deeply and start to get really, really curious. Explain the problems that you're having in your business to a large language model, ask for suggestions, ask it to cite its sources and start to understand where those problems come for and experiment as a result of that information. All of those things, it's like you have this very, very savvy business coach working with you one-on-one on on demand 24/7, 365. And if you don't use it, you're basically saying, Hey, this is a, um, you know, a hammer that I could use to pound in this nail, I'll just use my hand, right, yeah. instead. And they can be a lot more painful and slow.
1: So, yeah, it um, would be like saying, uh, well, I just, I'm just not using the internet, right? So exactly. I I think that uh, I'm seeing it, and I I'll ask you this final question on this, and then we'll move on. And thanks for these insights. Brilliant mm-hmm. stuff, obviously. Uh, I, I'm seeing this, and maybe I'm buying the hype, but I think this is a revolutionary thing now. I think it's another leveling of the playing field for us as small business owners, we now have access to what had previously been limited to people with higher or larger resources. Am I seeing it right or am I just buying the hype?
0: No, I think I think you're you're seeing it correctly to some extent, where it is absolutely groundbreaking. It will, without question, change the way business and society works in a variety of unforeseen ways. This is a piece of technology that its core purpose is to outthink and outperform a human mind, right? Like we haven't seen, there are a lot of people that want to make the comparison to going from horses to cars or going from candles to electricity. Neither of those pieces of technology or even going from no internet to internet, none of those pieces of technology were designed to replace the human mind, right? right? And because of the interconnectivity and the nature through which this new, what arguably organism that we've awakened um, can do like it is it's already changing every industry right I mean the ones that are probably the most immune to it right now maybe are skilled trades um, and the actual execution of those tasks but even in those businesses AI can absolutely be used to to um, help
1: run the yeah, business to, right? to augment to improve increase productivity all of that right
0: yeah now there are a couple pockets of people and there's like a third sector that I'm in one side of, of people are like, AI is incredible. Any of the hype around danger, uh, like existential threats of AI is overblown oh, and you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, the other camp is the inverse. And they say like the hype is absolutely real around the exi- existential threat. And so for that reason, I am not going to use it. I'm going to revolt against it. I think both <laughs> of those perspectives are highly flawed because without question, if left unchecked, there is a very, very large existential threat in artificial general intelligence, right? And its impact on humanity um, and potential extinction of humanity directly because of AGI, right? At the same time, the genie's already out of the bottle, folks. Right. right? This has already happened. And like regulation is starting to very rapidly happen because of how real that threat is. And why don't we live our lives to the best of our ability for as long as we possibly can? Because we don't know at the end of the day if lightning is going to strike me or if I'm going to get hit by a bus tomorrow. I want to live my life to the best possible way I can and achieve my goals in the best possible way I can. And if something insane happens, then something insane happens. But I'm not going to sit and bury my head in the sand and turtle up and just... Cry about it, right? Like, I am going to use this as a tool every single second of every day because my competitors will. And if my yeah. goal while I'm here on this earth is to dri- drive as much value as I possibly can for people, you know, that live on this earth with me and generations to come, this is a required tool now. It is that impactful, even if someone makes a mistake at some point and it causes some like very dramatic negative things for humanity. Right now, today, this tool is groundbreaking enough that you should probably try to consider living in both camps. Respect it just like you would respect Mount Everest, but don't ignore it because it's to be respected.
1: Well said, well said, thank you. All right, let's uh, talk a little bit more about what you are doing today, what you're focused on today, which is related to AI. So tell us about that.
0: At growth team behind the scenes, part of my doctoral dissertation um, in marketing and artificial intelligence is actually to create a top 0.1% Silicon Valley caliber VP of growth. That would be behind the scenes, pulling the strings for, you know, growth-based decision making for, you know, billion dollar companies and the smallest companies, right? If they can afford, what is it, probably like three to $500,000 a year for somebody that's at that level, uh, at least plus stock, mm-hmm. um, We want to build that using artificial intelligence and really, really strong processes and kind of like an interconnected approach that layers in various forms of technology and enables businesses to think and business owners to think in a completely different way than they ever have, right? And and if you were actually inside big tech, if you're inside a growth team at Facebook or Dropbox or LinkedIn or something like that, you'd see stuff like this. It would just take a team of 50 to 100 people to actually pull off. Uh, what we're trying to create is the approachability for that to happen as a software tool uh, that's approachable enough for the average entrepreneur to actually put to use in their own business with their existing resources. Um, that's what we're up to behind the scenes. It is one of the more complex knowledge work type jobs that there is in the world. Right? It's it is very very complicated. It's it's a blend of high levels of creativity, high levels of problem solving high levels of analysis and data-driven approach, lots of math, lots of science, lots of behavioral psych, all of that coupled into one package. It's a very, very special role, right? And that's why it's so highly paid. Yeah. Now, um, if we were able to create this using AI and it feels as though you have that sort of person at your fingertips all mm-hmm. the time, we believe that it could fundamentally change the way businesses are grown. And like that is not an understatement. That's exactly why we're doing it. Um, that said, I'm probably doing something that is profoundly stupid in the quest (laughs) for that. And I'm bootstrapping it, right. Uh, which is not something I would recommend to most people who are trying to build something so groundbreaking because it's expensive. I have in my career, you know, exited businesses and parlayed the entire amount of my net worth into a new idea. And there have been two times in my career where it hasn't worked out. A lot of people will look at my resume And they'll say, you must just be like, why are you working, right? Why are you not just like sitting on a beach somewhere? Well, and you know, here's the thing, like I'm pretty well off. Like I I like where I'm at right now, Uh, but there have been a couple of times in my career where I've gone all in with my own money rather than raising and lost, right? There was one of those times where I was over a million dollars in the hole personally. And that was after exit number six, so I actually and, had and why to, why
1: do you do that though? Is it because you wanna is it just because you want to end up owning it all or or why do you do that?
0: Yeah, great question. So there's not really a rational explanation other than the fact that oftentimes when you start to get a lot of investors into a business, yeah, the vision of the business, the direction of the sure. business ends up getting corrupted.
1: Somebody always uh, wants to wrestle control to some degree,
0: that's yeah? correct? Yes. So so um, for a business like Naval Ravinkan has a really great quote, um, that I thought was really, really interesting. And it's, um, valuation is temporary control is forever. <laughs> I right? love that. If you, if you raise money, your valuation is going to go up because the market has pegged you with a value. Uh, but over the course of time, unless you're a really, really special founder with a really strong track record, um, and you can negotiate control to continue to be in your hands, um, like, which is very rare, by the way, there will always be like in a case of emergency break glass if the CEO just goes crazy, sure. right? Like that's, investors will insist upon that because they need to protect themselves and their LPs. But like what my, my goal is with this one is to make sure that we can keep our eyes on the problem. It can take as long as it takes to solve. Uh, and you're on a ticking clock the second you raise capital. Those investors are, their fun thesis is they're gonna have to return capital to their LPs in a sp- specific period of time. Yeah. Um, so all the, all that being said, there's also probably another reason, which is a little bit of hubris sure. uh, along the lines of exactly what you said, like, Hey, it's hard. And I love that. Right. Uh, but at the same time, there's also an element of the fact that like, Hey, I've made a lot of money for a lot of other people in my career. And I haven't made nearly as much for myself in those instances where I've raised a lot of money. And that happens to every single founder who raises usually the people that get richest, our yep. investors, yep. right? The like th- that's the case in almost every single company. Sure, so yep. in this company, I am both the CEO and also the investor at this stage. There may come a time where we raise outside capital, but not today. Yeah, um, and and not not for which what you'd
1: have to give away today. So that makes perfect sense. Correct. Where do I go online to learn more at this point?
0: You can go to www.mygrowthteam.com. Uh, it is not a really sexy website right now, just as a fair warning. Um, we did not want a ton of clients because we didn't want the focus of the business to be on you know, an agency. Uh, we wanted it to be on building the technology behind the scenes, uh, but we did want to make sure that we had revenue coming in to bootstrap the business. We also wanted to make sure that we could refine the methodology, beta test the tools behind the scenes. By using them ourselves on behalf of the client before we optimize the user experience like all of these things are deliberate but if you were to go to the website right now at like www.mygrowthteam.com you're going to see just like very simple like website builder type stuff that you might see a normal agency have and you're going to see my ugly mug in a couple <laughs> of those videos um so if you're a subscription-based business if you're doing over you know fifty thousand a month in subscriptions um oftentimes you're a good fit for us. Uh, but again, like we're, we almost have a full roster right now. Um, we don't want a ton of, of folks that we're actually helping in an agency capacity. So now what we're doing is we're taking the next step towards technology and we're doing more of a coaching program. So we're actually telling people exactly what to do similar to what the technology product will do. Um, and then allowing the the clients to actually like execute on their own. So we're just getting closer and closer to know what the core experience will be and trying to learn those lessons in advance of actually having a product
1: yeah that makes sense excellent brilliant exciting all right let's wrap it up what um you know we've had a far-ranging conversation which has been fantastic travis so the question i always ask at the end is what's one thing you want us to take away and i think maybe if we focus it on what you've shared in a way of growing a business Mm -hmm. and also that entrepreneurial i'm calling it mindset and the way that you described it but What's one thing you want to stick away from what you've shared with us?
0: One key takeaway on growth specifically is that growth, like many people out there have a vested interest in telling you that growth and marketing are the same. And that, for example, like a specific approach is all you need. And an and example of this is Russell Brunson, right? Really smart guy and has found a way to convince the world that they're one funnel away. He has a funnel company. He should say that. That's his, <laughs> exactly. his job. Um, you're not going to find a single Silicon Valley unicorn that buys into that. There, There's a lot more that goes into, you know, growing a business, especially if your aim is to build like a hundred million dollar plus business. You're. It's not a one funnel away kind of thing. Yeah, you can build, you can make like, you know, 10, 20, 50, maybe even hundred grand a month um, as a business with that one funnel way approach, but you will inevitably plateau and panic. If you were to take a different approach to growth and you're to say, we're not, we're going to break all the silos. It's not just marketing to sales, to activation, to fulfillment. It's everyone is the growth team. Everyone is the growth team because our aim of the business is to go and deliver value to more of our ideal prospects. So all of these arms of the business tie into growth, all the data that we're collecting gives us clues as to why our, our customers think, feel, and behave the way they do. And if we actually get curious and dive into that data, create hypotheses, experiment with them correctly, then we'll actually be able to apply these learnings everywhere else and see how deep that rabbit hole goes. So get curious. Um, don't necessarily buy into the hype when you see that someone has a direct financial interest in you believing something specific. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure that you're inquisitive and think for yourself in that regard. But please don't lose math science behavioral psychology and speed as your four core tenants
1: great takeaway thanks for summarizing it that way uh where should we go online either to learn more or to follow you
0: you can go to www.mygrowthteam.com and uh you know book a call and our team will chat with you uh, or you can come see some of the things that I'm disseminating out there into the world on social media I'm the first time in my career actually active on social media as of <laughs> this year. Right? yeah um so linkedin instagram twitter you can just look up my name travis stefan two f's two e's and you're gonna find me i'm the the guy that looks like um a lumberjack effectively and yeah that's that's my name across twitter and instagram and then on linkedin it's just you know linkedin.com slash in slash t stefan
1: Wonderful. And we'll have links to all of that on the show notes page. If you're not where you can write that down or don't remember, it's worth following Travis for all of his insights and experience. Travis, wonderful conversation. Could talk to you for another couple of hours. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for being so transparent and for taking the time to be with me today. Thanks for having me. This is Henry Lopez. And thanks for joining me on this episode of the How Web Business. My guest today again was Travis Steffen. I release new episodes every Monday morning, You can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, including at my website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages,
0: links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.